This is a Federal News Network podcast. Welcome to Ask the Chief Information Officer on Federal News Network. Now your host, Jason Miller. My guests today are Judy Conley, the Science and Technology Coordinator for Platform Integrity at the Naval Surface Warfare Center, Carter Rock. Judy, welcome to the discussion. Thank you. Yes. And we're also joined by Jessica McElman, the Division Head for Underwater Electromagnetic Signatures and Technology Division, also at the Naval Surface Warfare Center, Carter Rock. Jessica, welcome to the discussion, too. Thank you. This Ask the CIO is kind of a special part of our, our work with the women in technology. You both are finalists in that women in technology, we'll call it context, uh, recognition, whatever we're going to call it. But basically, the, the idea here is to talk about not just technology, but leadership, your role in technology and, and the things you do. But let's do a level set. Let me start with Jessica as Division Head for Underwater Electromagnetic Signatures and Technology Division. Big deep breath there. <laughs> Talk about your role at the Naval Surface Warfare Center, Carter Rock. Essentially, my division is responsible for um, ensuring the fleet's underwater electromagnetic signature advantage. We do that by providing the Navy with um, technologies and expertise that allow them to dominate the battle space, you know, when they're out conducting operations. Um, And we do that hopefully at the best value and the lowest impact um, to the fleet. On a day-to-day basis, I oversee the technical work of highly skilled scientists and engineers, and they work in a very specialized area. This is not something that you learn a lot about when you're in school. Um, And so they kind of get trained on the job and and have to come through the learning curve um, on site. And from a longer-term perspective, I am responsible for uh, the strategic planning for the organization, uh, making sure that we have the technical health and, and capabilities of our personnel into the future, so making sure that they're trained and knowledgeable in the work that they're doing. Um, and making sure that we have um, rigorous uh, management and processes and procedures to make sure that we put out a good product to the fleet. All right, I'm going to ask the the most obvious question, follow-up question. What is electromagnetic signatures? Is it, <laughs> is it like like I think of radar? I know it's not radar or right. sonar because we're talking about navy. Right. But that's maybe too simple or no. no um, so radar is above water. I Correct. do underwater. That's, why, that's yeah. why I said that's why I said maybe sonar, right? Right. Um, I, I, and I, I, sonar I is more acoustics. Right. Yes. Saw for in October. Come on. And that's actually a great reference. <laughs> um, but I'll tell you, my millennials nowadays don't understand that reference, so I can't use it anymore. Well, they're playing it on like Showtime or HBO or right. something that I keep seeing the movies. So, but yep. but all right. So so it's underwater. It's it's sonar or it's no. So okay. um, essentially, the a ship or a submarine is a big piece of steel that's moving through Earth's magnetic field. And so when you have something that's magnetic moving through Earth's magnetic field, um, you can see deflections. So that can be measured. That's the magnetic piece. The electric piece is very much uh, like a battery. So you would have a um, a steel hole and a a different material propeller, and you would have current that travels from one material to another because naturally they have different potentials that they operate at. And again, that's something that can be measured. I I love the fact you you said that these aren't that type of thing. You don't hire an engineer out of Caltech or another big university who knows electromagnetic, they probably have some other sort of background. So we're going to get to your background in a second. Let me bring in Judy to the discussion. Science and Technology Coordinator for Platform Integrity. Seems easier to uh, understand what it is, but tell us what you do. So I work with, uh, cover a wide spectrum of technology areas in our um, department, from materials to power and energy, 
structures and um, protection area. So what we do in, in being platform integrity is to make sure that all those things work together to make sure that the ship works, it doesn't fall apart, and it stays afloat. All good things, right? <laughs> yes. Right. And there's a lot of baseline. So we cover, you know, wide swath being science and technologies, looking at the wide swath of basic technology through applied technology to transitions and things like that. And when you talk about the, the power integrity, it seems to me like the critical infrastructure of a ship or a submarine Meaning, does it have a way to ensure that electricity is getting where it needs or nuclear power? Or are you talking about something else? Part of that is that it's getting to where it needs to go, but also that the power works, that you have the right power that is not um, exploding and then it's very safe within the energy and that you have the energy on demand when you need it, that they can then power up as well. When you hear science and technology, a lot of times it's an R, it feels like it's an R&D position. Mm-hmm. Is there a lot of R&D in, in your role? Definitely. Well, a lot of the things that I do is is understanding what the basic sciences are and the applied sciences and looking at those as opportunities to lay a baseline, foundational, for the um, things that need to be used later in life. So I don't know if this gets into the sensitivity, so if it does, forgive me, but give me an example of maybe something you're working on today that could kind of put make it make this a little more specific to so people understand that you're, you're day in and day out. A lot of times the people that are working in the materials area are looking at baseline materials and even coming up with different, let's say, formulations for materials that will work better for, let's say, corrosion or fatigue or, you know, do the things that need to be done to keep the platform together. Then the power energy is like doing, again, different formulations of the the baseline things to have better power and to make it safer. Protection is, again, one of those other things. It's, it's, so those are all the materials and power energy are more baseline things, the more applied or structures, but it's still a, a, a foundational science for what we need to build upon. Okay. So it sounds to me like a lot of the work is, okay, what do we do today that works, and how do we make it better, more efficient, maybe cheaper, maybe longer lasting, so the ship, the, the submarine, the, the piece of equipment runs better. Yes. All and, right. And it's a lot of being able to figure out the right strategy. What are the baseline things you need to discover now that then can grow into the, the strategic, um, more technologies, more mature technologies for the future? Judy, talk a little bit about your background, too. How did you end up in this role? Have you been in government for a long time? Did you come from private sector? I've been here a long time. I actually started at Carter Rock from my undergrad I started right away in 1982, so I'm dating myself, because I got I was a civil engineer undergrad in looking at structures, and I was fortunate enough to get this offer and came out here um, from Michigan State. I started working in the submarine area um, in structures, got to look at a lot of different things, looked at acoustic windows, and moved on from there to the submarines in the Arctic. So I've gotten to do a lot of eclectic tasks and projects. I moved from submarines to surface ships and working with the nav air, so the, um, the Navy air stations and the planes that go on to the landing ships and looking at the interactions with those on the decks. So I've gotten to do a really wide eclectic swath of technologies and working with different people on different kinds of areas and looking how they interact with each other and collaborate. So being that, as an um, engineer, I also was a branch head for a while, so a supervisor, and moved from there and got to move into science and technology and working with the, the research director at Carterock. 
So I've been able to do that working with the portfolio, so a lot of the basic um, science portfolios for Carter Rock in general and also specifically for platform integrity. Having that wider vision of, of the, the whole and how we can do the little pieces that can co- coalesce to a good product in the end. I have to ask, growing up, did you say, I want to be an engineer working on subs? No. Because uh, right, if you said yeah. yes, that'd be pretty darn cool. <laughs> no, it would have been nice. I, I probably changed my career uh, path or my, my um, major three times while I was in, at university. Perfect. But it all came together, and I'm happy with it. That's the greatest thing about, I think, being part of the government community. I mean, I only get to see it from the outside, but nobody grows up and says, maybe somebody does, but but the the majority of people don't grow up to say, I want to work in X. And then, as as you saw through your career, you've walked through and said, well, I got subs, I got Navair, a very eclectic group. So, Jessica, same question. How did you end up where you are? Have you been in government for a long time? Did you come from industry? So I started at NSWC Carter Rock uh, back in 2001, right after I finished my graduate degree in electrical engineering. So I've been with this group ever since in underwater electromagnetics. I spent about uh, 12 years uh, doing testing, and then I did another six years or so as branch head um, for theory modeling and analysis of UEM. And now I'm currently the division head. I've been division head for about a year and a half now. So um, I've kind of just moved up through the ranks over the years. And um, when I started, though, I had no idea uh, <laughs> even what engineering was. <laughs> so, you know, back in, in high school, I'm looking at careers. I was looking at math and architecture and some other areas. And, um, and my mom asked me to go see my guidance counselor and I talked with her, and she suggested um, that I become an engineer. And I looked at her, and I must have had a crazy look on my face, and I told her I didn't want to drive a train. So um, <laughs> that was kind of my first uh, introduction to engineering, and it turned out well for me. And I really have enjoyed it, but uh, you never know where you're going to end up sometimes. You might not even know that something exists. Exactly. And I think, as you said in the beginning of the conversation, you, you don't hire people to do electromagnetic. You, you, you have to train them, but they have yeah. that background of, of probably like you did in electrical engineering. One of the reasons why we're talking is really because of you guys are both you both are finalists for the Women in Technology Leadership Award, and, and so one congratulations. And instead of asking you both the obvious question about how do you feel, because we try not to do that, maybe talk a little bit about what that means from not just being recognized for being leaders, but but how do you bring those qualities of leadership qualities to your job day in and day out. Maybe Jessica, start us off. Sure. You know, I was thinking about this. I spent, uh, I don't know, a few years while I was in college going through different uh, rotations as a co-op and an intern, um, trying to figure out exactly what I wanted to do. And um, I think it wasn't until my fifth rotation that I really had an idea of something that I found that I liked. The first four were things that I knew I didn't want to do ever again. (laughs) And so um, for me, I've kind of taken from that experience um, the possibility to be able to provide those types of opportunities for my employees, allowing them to rotate around um, and try out different areas that they think they may be more interested maybe than t- what they're particularly assigned on a, at a given point in time. And then, you know, beyond that, um, through volunteer work that I've done, I realized that I kind of liked 
leading an organization and um, planning for the future of an organization. And I looked around me at work trying to figure out what type of role or position that might be. And that's how I kind of came into um, the leadership roles at work. And so I went back to school and got another degree um, in engineering management. And so that's another area where, um, you know, I look back at my experience and say, how can I help um, others? And so I'd like to encourage them to go back to school and and learn what they can. Um, and I think that my background, I spent a lot of time in all-girls kind of institutions, high school and dorms and college and sororities, and, and that was a real supportive environment for me. So I want to foster that same kind of um, inclusive environment, I think, in the office as well. And um, I think that and not just for women in general, but just inclusivity in general, that's something that creates um, motivation and I think just makes people feel good to know that they're included in something. And so I like to look kind of at past experiences and draw from that and and bring that in. Judy, I'm going to ask you to hold on. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we can ask you the same question. My guests today are Judy Conley, the Science and Technology Coordinator for Platform Integrity, and Jessica McElman, the Division Head for Underwater Electromagnetic Signatures and Technology Division. Both are with Naval Surface Warfare Center, Carterock. I'm Jason Miller, and you're listening to a special edition of Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. Welcome back. You're listening to a special edition of Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. I'm your host, Jason Miller. My guests today are Judy Conley, the Science and Technology Coordinator for Platform Integrity, and Jessica McElman, the Division Head for Underwater Electromagnetic Signatures and Technology Division, both with the Naval Surface Warfare Center at Carter Rock. Before break, we're talking about your backgrounds a little bit. We got to know you, your jobs, your everyday jobs. Both of you seem to have very interesting and, and cool jobs. We, we did a segment here years ago called Cool Jobs in Government, and, and people don't understand how, like, you get to play with some nice toys, I bet. But, but, but the reason why we're talking today as well is, is because of the Women in Technology Leadership Award. You're both finalists, with, so again, congratulations on that. Let me bring Judy into the conversation about your qualities that you bring to, the, to every day. What, what are some of the things as you t- talk about being a leader, being a woman leader in, t- in technology? <laughs> talk a little bit about what, what, what you try to do every day. What I talked about my background before, um, I was very fortunate to get a wide swath of working with personnel and areas um, and institutes. And I think that gives me a really good perspective to look at the technology because that has a big spectrum as well, going from basic all the way to, you know, applied and, and, and transitional to, you know, using it in the fleet. And one of the things I think that that background has given me is um, being very open to the possibilities that I can see the strategic use of what could be done very um, closer to uh, basic technology. You know, the ability to, like, kind of open and close that focus on what's being there, that you're, you need to look at this little widget over here at the atom, atomic level, and then it's going to build into something that's a big structure or a whole system, and how that could possibly get there without knowing the exact path, but being open to the innovation and the pivotal points that could happen through that. So as you work with your, your staff and the people day in and day out, is, is that part of the way you encourage them to say, hey, take this from a different perspective, or what's the art of the possible? I mean, very simple questions, but if you don't ask them or if you don't encourage them to take those, to think that way, then 
people can get stuck in ruts or stuck in the, well, it's the way we've always done it. Yes, exactly. And that's the thing is I've been very fortunate recently to work with um, the lab at OPM and with their human-centered design um, fun, fundamentals, and I'm helping them actually teach some of their fundamental courses recently. And so that's the thing that we brought back to um, Carter Rock is how do you open yourself up to other people and when you're doing design, actually do the ethnographics with the people that you're doing the design for and doing the type of talking back and forth and working with prototypes side by side to get that tacit knowledge that doesn't always come out. People have inside of them that hasn't been written down necessarily or anything like that. And one of my latest thrills that I'm working with is getting the latent knowledge. So it's even the people things that people don't know that they know. And that's the working with them on prototypes side by side. And you can ask the questions like, well, you you know, you turn that knob this way. Why did you do that? And it's like, well, I've always done it that way. Well, I'm looking back and it's because of this. So getting all that knowledge out is very powerful. That's fascinating that you're working on the human-centered design. Now, is that new to your the platform integrity piece? Meaning like, Who's using the platform? Why are they using it? How do we build so they are happy versus just, well, we put a platform out and the knobs are three in a row and that's, you know, the buttons are three in a row and that's what you have to push. I mean, I don't think it's necessarily new. I think different people do different things, but I think it's the thing to bring to the forefront of, hey, this is how you really should do these types of, when you're going through and doing a design, it's not necessarily just what you think they need because you can have the $5 million uh, website that nobody uses because the software designer just decided to do it this way. It's that you have to go out there and actually talk to the sailors, and I've been very fortunate to have been able to be in the field and do a lot of things with them, see what their environment is like, talk to them about how they use things or how these things affect them, and so doing that and bringing that to, you know, all the other people that are uh, working and recognizing it, that you should be able to do these things. And we have different exercises that you can work with to open them up to this is how to do these things. Jessica, human-centered design is one of those buzzwords we see a lot. Engineers, with all due respect to you both, who you're both engineers, are not necessarily known (laughs) for asking the people who use the equipment, Mm -hmm. usually the, the... the idea is that uh, requirements get thrown over the transom and engineers just do it. How are you, are you working that concept into the, the, your work every day? Yes. I, Hopefully. Yes. <laughs> There's hesitation there. Maybe. Uh... I was just trying to think of exactly how we do that. But I think along with what Judy said, we do have a lot of interaction with uh, personnel out in the fleet. So we go on board the ships and submarines and we talk to the sailors and submariners and find out what they like about the systems that we've designed um, and that we're working on with them, um, what they don't like, what they'd prefer to see, um, and anything that makes their job easier so that they don't have to check on things you know, 20 times a day or that they don't always have an alarm going off in their ear or things of that nature are, are things that we have to take into consideration. And we've learned a lot along the way where we think we're doing something good and they come back and say, oh, this is the part that we hate the most. <laughs> and so it's, it's very enlightening sometimes to get that feedback. Is that, as a manager, as a leader in, in each of your areas of expertise, is that the best feedback you can get is when the users say, yeah, that didn't work for us, even though you, you thought, well, this was this is the, our, our best yet. I mean, you talk a little bit about how that influences you as managers, too, because it's one thing to be like one of your staff members comes to you and says, I have an idea, and then you work through it. But it's much more effective when the users come to you and say, 
we like this or we don't like this or do it this way because of this reason. This is Judy. So one of the things that um, I've gotten the chance to do is using this human centered design is actually providing an app and a tool to the sailors on board to check how they're doing their flight operations. We were able to give them letters to say, hey, you can do it within this boundary, but that was not inclusive enough for them to do everything. So we actually designed the, the um, app and put it together the way we thought it was going with a little bit of talk. But then we brought in the actual people that were going to use it, the air bosses and the LSOs, and got different perspectives as to how they would use it and what was important to them. And we were able to change it and get it out there as a prototype. So, And that was something to use with having the software developer sitting side by side with them as well as the project manager, the project engineer, and seeing how their equations that were could go into and boil down into maybe not necessarily green, yellow, red, but that sort of thing, and how it was powerful to have that information in the right way. Was that a good lesson for your staff to see that you, you all made a decision, you went in a specific direction, and when the users came in, they said, uh, and, and how, how do you as a manager kind of handle that, quote-unquote, failure? I mean, it, it wasn't a failure, but, but in some ways it was. Well, that's, that's a very important thing because, in, uh, you know, doing any kind of innovation of things, people talk about being and having to be at the risk of a fail. And, and one of the things I came up with recently is, like, you can call it a failure, you could call it a pivot point. And a lot of the things we do should look at those pivot points and say, okay, this didn't work exactly going down this path that was going to lead us all the way here. We can pivot there and go to it at a different angle, and it's going to work because we can do the yes and. Yes, this is working so far this way, but and we can go over here. Jessica, talk a little bit about this idea of a very similar. How are you, how are you as a manager dealing with that idea of, not just uh, if you've experienced failure too. You probably have it with, with everybody does with what you do, right? <laughs> but but how are you in, in terms of working with your staff to encourage either different thought or different, bringing in the, the users in a different way to, to to influence the direction you guys go? We're always looking to have you know integrated product teams, um, IPTs we call them, um, or working groups where we bring in uh, a wide variety of people with different backgrounds that can maybe provide different perspectives than we would have thought um, in a kind of a single vision that we might have, you know, or groupthink that we might have when we're all working in the same area on a day-to-day basis together. So always um, taking that into consideration, bringing in as many um, different perspectives as possible. So the sailor on board, you know, the program manager, the technical expert, and uh, you know the the folks that maybe have to think about logistics and operations. And because things that we do can affect each um, stakeholder differently. One of the big lessons I imagine that 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 comes out during this is is you're managing expectations. You're also managing the people. Walk me through some some of those best. We'll call them best practices, <laughs> or, or what have you found that has worked to 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 ensure that the as engineers and as as the developers, you're not just blind or you put on blinders to the the, the bigger picture. Is is there something that Judy? I think the one of the things that is really good is to have that again a very good big integrated team, but also having meetings where everybody's you know sees the big picture and sees their part within that big picture. And that those have been the best projects or the most probably fruitful ones versus just throwing requirements over the fence and saying you need to do this. Because those things where you see that 
this has to integrate here, there's an there's a interaction is very important. And that's the thing of working with the different entities and the different institutes as well, seeing how whatever you're doing on the ship in this area is going to interact or affect the operations for these people over there. It seems like many times that gets lost in translation where, well, I'm just responsible for X. Well, but X has this downstream effect. Do you have the same thing, Jessica? Yes, Judy made a really good point that one of the things that I have to remember as a leader in the division is that while I may see a big picture and have a very good understanding of why we're doing what we're doing, when we go down to um, the working level engineers um, and they're given an assignment, it's very specific and uh, they may do that specific assignment very well, but without having the knowledge of the bigger picture that I have, it may not be exactly what I'm looking for. And that's one thing that I think it's always important, like you said, um, Judy, to bring that um, perspective to the working level engineers so that they understand the bigger picture. As managers, do you see the emerging technologies, that whether we're talking AI or ML, or just because you both are in very specific types of, of, of technology, I'll be honest, I'm not sure what's emerging in the electromagnetic world, <laughs> and I'm not sure what's emerging in platform integrity, but how, how is that kind of changing the way you manage? Because, again, it goes back to something I think Judy said earlier, is when people bring ideas, you have to be open to them and can't be like, well, we haven't done it that way before. Is there something that how technology, the, the piece of technology, how I'll put it that way, mm-hmm. is impacting you as managers? Yes, this is Jessica. I would say that um, the biggest thing that I have to be more adaptable and flexible and always be willing to uh, learn a new area, you know, whether it means going to take a course, short course, or, you know, a two-hour lecture just to get up to speed on some new area that I may be asked about. We're just at the beginning stages, really, of working with AI and ML in uh, UEM, and so I can't speak to a lot there, but um, but I think the adaptability and flexibility is something that we really have to be prepared for now. And I imagine just in, in both your areas, and Judy, I want to get to the same question for you in a second, but I imagine in both your areas, the technology can change very quickly, and it's, it's as simple as could be speed, it could be the type, I mean, who knows. But So Judy, same, same question about the technology and the changing nature of it. Um, one of the things is to be very open because, again, as you're saying, technology has changed a lot in the last few years that, or even years that I've been working. And it's to be open to using these things as a toolkit, you know, a tool within your toolkit. And how would that affect, how does it work well? How does it, you know, don't just use something because it's the latest buzzword or anything like that. But where does it work? Where does it enhance what you're doing? And where do you look to something else that might be more important? So it's a tool, um, and it's also something that, yeah, you probably have to get a little more information, a little bit more up to speed as to how it uses, maybe to some sort of depth of the of the theory or something like that. But you don't necessarily have to be the expert in the room about it, but how do you use it properly? I want to take a quick break before we do that. Just real quick questions for both of you. Do you find time in your schedules as leaders, as managers, to take that two-week course or that two-hour course, or is that the hardest part of being a manager in in many ways, Jessica? It can be difficult, but for me, that is my professional development is 
not only good for me, I think it's good for the entire organization. And so I want to make sure that I am taking care of myself so that I can take care of my group. And Judy? And the same thing. And we were very fortunate with webinars and a lot of different technology that gives us things quite quickly and can see it as, as we can. All right. Well, we're going to take a quick break. When we get back, we can continue to talk about your work in, in, in your fields and, and the fact that you guys are both, uh, again, women in technology leadership finalists. My guests are Judy Conley the Science and Technology Coordinator for Platform Integrity, and Jessica McElman, the Division Head for Underwater Electromagnetic Signatures and Technology Division, both with the Naval Surface Warfare Center, Carterock. I'm Jason Miller, and you're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. Welcome back. You're listening to a special edition of Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. I'm your host, Jason Miller. My guests today are Judy Conley, the Science and Technology Coordinator for Platform Integrity, and Jessica McElman, the Division Head for Underwater Electromagnetic Signatures and Technology Division, both with the Naval Surface Warfare Center, Carterock. Now, before break, we were talking a little bit about the, being a manager in the technology field. We were talking a little bit about the challenges of, of changing technology. Let's go back to the 50,000-foot view. As you both are, are finalists in the Women in Technology Leadership Award, being a manager is much different today than it was five years ago, it was 10 years ago, it was 20 years ago. Let's start with why is it different and, and how, how are you as managers having to adapt to that changing way you manage? Judy, we'll start with you since you've been a manager a little longer. When I first started, and not when I was not necessarily a manager, but when I first started, I mean, technology is much more quickly these days and, and you get quicker turnaround for the design space, much broader perspective to a degree. However, there's probably a lot more room for error and not really realizing that these things here will affect the, all, everything down the line. So you have to be able to make sure that you see those error bars and that you know, you're allowing a lot of space to do the work that they're doing, but keep in mind that not everything's the truth and, and sorting that out properly. Do you find that beyond the, the quick-moving technology, the people are different or- when you started, was it full of, if you will, white men, and now you have a much more diverse... When I first started, yes. I was probably one of the only females in the room on a lot of meetings. I still am on a lot of the, a lot of them at the higher level. But I was fortunate enough, especially as a branch head, to hire females where I could and, you know, get a, a bigger swath in there. But it's still a sparse. Um, it's just trying to get the right technology, the right people with the right information, you- and getting that perspective is very important. And, and let me take it one step further down. And, and instead of focusing on the technology, let me focus on you for a second. Mm-hmm. As you were in the room, I mean, in 1985, the way you interacted with your coworkers is probably different than the way you interact today. Jessica's shaking her head. And, and she- <laughs> Quite honestly, back then, too, as I was very fresh in the field, and I, you know, I'm one of the people that kind of take a step back and observe and see how things are going. And it's, I'm not probably as aggressive, and I've never been that way with, you know, getting my point across or that kind of thing. But I, and just having much more maturity and much more experience and, a, again, a bigger viewpoint of what's out there and the different types of things, I feel more comfortable talking to you, talking about things and, and giving my opinion about what's out there because I've had that, that background and that comfort level and that experience, which is a huge thing. With a lot of engineers, and I feel this just in general, that engineering is one of those things that you grow with a, a lot. You, again, as um, Jessica had talked about, you, you don't necessarily get an engineer fresh out of the box that's going to do what you want them to do. They're going to learn and they're going to get that experience. And being able to work alongside people is very important. It's almost like a journeyman 
type of experience. What, what I enjoy about Federal News Network and being manager is the player coach. It sounds like you have a little bit of that too. Mm-hmm. Yes, and I think that's important. And I'm not sure if everybody experiences that as much this these years, maybe with the newer way of people doing it, that come straight out and it's like, the, here's the code, I want you to do that. And don't understand that it's a better to be able to have that player coach, that, you know, that kind of mentor-mentee experience and journeyman kind of things that you do learn a lot as you go, but understanding what the background is of people that have come before you is very important. And Jessica, talk a little bit about your experience. You, as you said, came to the government after after grad school mm-hmm. in the early 2000s and much different than the mid-80s. That, that mm-hmm. I remember that well. Uh, <laughs> so talk a little bit about how change you've seen over the last 20 years. 20 years ago, there weren't the number of women in leadership roles that I see today. Back then, I feel like you really had to be willing to kind of forge your own path and um, you didn't have the female role models necessarily in the job that maybe you envisioned yourself in. And so you had to be willing to kind of take that risk and, and step forward. And I feel like I've been very fortunate in that there have been at least some female role models along the way for me. Um, and I've had very good mentors, um, as Judy mentioned, that really helped me grow professionally and build confidence in myself and my abilities so that I would feel comfortable stepping into other roles. So I do think it's very different. You know, I was kind of nodding my head earlier because I was thinking back to uh, when I was a co-op, and there were opportunities that I was actually never allowed to partake in because I wasn't male, because there were extracurricular activities going on associated with the job, and they didn't want women being in that environment, quite frankly. And so um, I don't see that anymore. And uh, to me, that is a huge difference from when I started, you know, when I was um, 20 years old as a co-op to now. In many ways, that's a sign of, of not just change, but a sign of the, the broader acceptance that as you have different people in different roles, it's not only important from a perspective, meaning they, they, bring, a, they, they bring a different outlook. Talk a little bit about how that's also helped. Yeah, having that in- inclusivity is very important. And, and seeing just about that you have a different perspective, again, as you're saying, because it could be a lot of different things that are underneath the surface that you don't even know about. It's like, how did they grow up? Where did they grow up? Where is it rural? Was it, you know urban, what kind of school did you go to, what were your you know, professors don't, you know, don't always come from the same, you know, university, don't always recruit from those. It's like you have to reach out and get those things. And having, you know, opening yourself up to saying, hey, you know, what, what are you seeing in this problem, but what are the things that you have, you know, that you experience at home and even off, off the job that is important. Let's take another quick break. When we come back, we can uh, finish up our conversation. My guests today are Judy Conley, the Science and Technology Coordinator for Platform Integrity, and Jessica McElman, the Division Head for Underwater Electro... Jessica McElman, the Division Head for Underwater Electromagnetic Signatures and Technology Division, both with the Naval Surface Warfare Center at Carter Rock. I'm Jason Miller, and you're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. Welcome back. You're listening to a special edition of Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. I'm your host, Jason Miller. My guests today are Judy Conley, the Science and Technology Coordinator for Platform Integrity, and Jessica McElman, the Division Head for Underwater Electromagnetic Signatures and Technology Division, both with the Naval Surface Warfare Center, Carter Rock. We're talking to you both today because, one, you both have pretty cool jobs, and but two, you both are finalists in the Women in Technology Leadership Award, and 
and the conversation today is really focused on leadership. What does it take to be a leader? What does it take uh, to work in the technology field, both as women, but, but more broadly as people who are trying to manage and deal with the changing nature of technology? And what does it take these days? Let's talk about recruiting because I think that's a, that's a key piece. Are there steps you all have taken over the last, you know, 5, 10, 15 years to open up the, the, the recruitment? Jessica, talk a little bit about it. Is there something you've done as a manager? For me, I've gone out on uh, recruiting events, and I think oftentimes um, having that uh, female technical person who's there as a recruiter um, is something that can automatically draw in um, a more diverse pool of um, personnel who are interested I'm going to interrupt. Do you get sure. when you go to a university and you can pick whichever one you go to? Being a woman who has Navy Carter Rock, you know, behind you, <laughs> do you get more women walking up to you? I haven't done a lot of career fairs where that may be oh. the case, but I can say from my experience when I participated as a student in career <laughs> fairs, being able to walk up to someone who is like you, it can be more inviting in a lot of ways, and so I could see that as if that was the case for me, that that may be the case for others. As a manager, are you able to, to participate sometimes in the recruiting side? Because when you have an opening, it's one thing to get resumes and look at resumes or meet people or do the hiring itself, but, but how do you ensure you have that pipeline? Is there something you're able to do as a manager? I look back at my history in, my, in college. I was part of a sorority that was for women in engineering and technical sciences. And so I do try to reach out to them and see if we can bring in a more um, diverse set of candidates for our positions. That's a, that's a great idea. Judy? I haven't been able to do the recruiting for a long time, but I have um, stayed out there, especially as when I was a branch head. And I always, I guess, probably into a little bit of default, tried to look at what is the difference, you know, and what are, you know, I'm not going to look at every thing coming from the same university. I want to actually look at what the different possibilities are. The other piece of this is the internal folks, and sometimes, as you probably all have experienced, is you get into a meeting and there's always the loud talker, usually me, I'll omit that, and then there's usually the person who, who needs to be more thoughtful and can come back to you in a couple of days with our ideas. How do you find the right balance of, of people and of, well, we know Joe loves to yell out and talk and, and is, is, is like throw spaghetti against the wall and, and Mary's more quiet or vice versa? I think that one of the things is to yeah handle people differently as they as as they're comfortable and as what you can tease out of them, and you can do different things with the let the loud talker you know get through <laughs> what they need to get through and try to pivot away from there as it's as it is organically and and that sort of thing and not to put that person who wants to think about it necessarily on the spot but to know that maybe I need to reach out to them or always have that round the you know round the room to finish and see if you can maybe tease out a little bit at that time. Do you sometimes not make a decision after a meeting and, and make the decision a day or two later so that, that, that person, that personality has that moment to come back to you and say, I was thinking about yeah. X and here's what I think and then you can kind of, then you really are collecting all that information. And being empathetic to those different types of people, that's the other thing too. Just having that empathy is very important to like understand that there are different people and you know, giving them that space. Jessica, do you want to talk a little bit about the same, the same sure. challenge? Sure. What I was going to add there maybe is that I think one of the ways that you can deal with the, the folks who have the ideas right away and the other folks that need to kind of ruminate on things a bit is after these meetings, after these discussions, send out an email that says, hey, this is what we discussed. Um, these are the ideas on the table. Have a week to think about it. Get back to me if you have any more ideas um, because you, you don't want to 
you need to keep things moving forward um, in a lot of respects, but you also want to make sure that you gather as many ideas as possible. I mean, it's not just diversity in people, it's diversity in ideas. The more ideas that you have on the table, there may be some that you need to throw away right away and others um, that you can um, build on and whittle down to the, the leading candidate. When you're, you're a manager in the STEM field, it's not easy. There's long days, there's lots of challenges. What kind of advice would you give to other managers? Maybe Judy start? One of the things, major things I think is just to stay open to the possibilities. We're in an ever-evolving field with technology, and you should um, have many the opportunity to, to look at many explorations and, and feel able to see what the space is and to pivot appropriately. And that's the thing, is then not look at things as failures necessarily, but to, as pivot points. I love that because I think... Too many times, we, we, especially in the federal world, we talk about risk aversion and, and afraid to fail, or, or even we talk about it's okay to fail, but pivoting is a much lighter term to say, well, this didn't work, we'll go to the right or go to the left. Yeah, and you should pivot. You should be able to learn from those things that you've done. One thing that comes to mind as you talk about stay open to opportunities, imagine as a manager working in a science technology field, it's easy to get stuck in a rut. It's easy to be like, well, we'll just do that same thing again. Is there a certain way or a certain approach you've taken to ensure that your aperture is open? Is there, again, is it, is it just a matter of you go to different conferences, you go to, you take different courses, or you're reading Scientific America? Bad example, I know, because it probably doesn't exist anymore, but you get my point. I think having really good conversations with people that are doing a lot of different things, and, and, and that's the thing, is that if you don't have those conversations or don't have those interactions, you probably do stay in a rut, and you and it's easy to do, hey, I'm going to do it this way because I've always done it this way, and it works. And seeking those conversations. Yes, you yes. got to seek them. And Jessica, you, you also uh, gave a nice smile when, when we talked about, when, when Judy talked about the shiny object. Did you have that same syndrome? <laughs> uh, it's hard not to, you know. <laughs> See something shiny, it automatically grabs your attention. You want to pick it up. One thing that's kind of different about, the area that we work in is that we are in this R&D and um, so research and development and science and technology environment. And so we are oftentimes always working on something new. And so while you may be able to use the tools that you've developed previously um, on this new project, you are going to have to adapt it to some extent. And so in a lot of ways, we're not just building widgets where we're doing the same thing day in and day out, and it's very easy to maybe get stuck in that rut. We are having new ideas and new products that we're working on um, on a regular basis. So I think that kind of helps uh, as well. First of all, let me thank you both for your time. My guests have been Judy Conley, the Science and Technology Coordinator for Platform Integrity, and Jessica McElman, Division Head for Underwater Electromagnetic Signatures and Technology Division, both with the Naval Surface Warfare Center, Carterock. Judy, thank you for your time. Thank you for having me here. And Jessica, thank you as well. Thank you. I'm Jason Miller, and you've been listening to a special edition of Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. You've been listening to Ask the Chief Information Officer on Federal News Network. Tune in Thursday mornings at 10 or subscribe to this show on iTunes or Podcast One.